right now, as always on Fridays, we're joined by CBS Face the Nation moderator Margaret Brennan. I wanted to ask her her thoughts about this week's general election. Well, with the election that we saw this past week, uh, there was a message sent that certain issues will make voters turn out and they'll turn out across party lines, um, not just Democrats or Republicans, but on issues like abortion access, as we saw in the state of Ohio, there was high turnout to try to uh, enshrine access. And that suggests it wasn't just Democrats voting, it was Republicans. So that raises that issue specific question of is it just that one issue or does that indicate that perhaps prospects for some of these uh, democratic priorities and perhaps the party are brighter than polling would suggest because the the president's own approval rating has really been stuck uh, in the 40s. Uh, You did see places like Virginia, uh, where we have um, the Democratic Senator Mark Warner on from uh, this weekend, and and there a Republican governor did not see the turnout he expected that would potentially flip his state house. In fact, he has a Democratic majority and he's a Republican governor. So we're continuing to try to read the tea leaves here to see if there are broader signs that we can extrapolate to the presidential race for 2024. That perhaps the Trump-backed Republican Party went too far on some of these issues and we're seeing the repercussions from that. Is, is that the implication? Well, potentially on um, abortion in terms of what the Supreme Court did, it, it, it's one of those issues um, that does seem, at least with particularly female voters, to drive turnout and not necessarily be easily pinpointed to a political party, that there's complex, it's a complex issue and people have complex feelings about it. Uh, and so when there are these standalone votes, as there was with Ohio, um, that there are certain issues that can be mobilized. And, and that raises the question of if Democrats um, are campaigning around more abortion access, does that mean some of those Republican voters would cross over and vote for a Democratic candidate? Mm. That's another question. So uh, there's a lot of you know political analysis that's happening. But right now, um, as we reported on last Sunday's program in that head-to-head race between Trump and Biden, the polling, at least at this point, indicates that that Donald Trump would have a three-point lead. And pretty soon we may have to poll for a third-party candidate. Rumors are that Joe Manchin, uh, who is not going to run again for his Senate seat, might be exploring a third-party candidacy. Now, we've seen this before. You think it'll work out for, for Mr. Manchin? It indicates just how um, complicated our political scene is right now. These are very tight presidential races. They have been for the last two Mm -hmm. Um, and, and tighter than is comfortable for some of those party leaders. So the suggestion of injecting um, either challengers within the Democratic Party, as we've seen Minnesota's Dean Phillips say he wants to challenge Joe Biden, or the prospect of a third party run as Joe Manchin, uh, the Democrat from West Virginia, has floated, that raises the question of does that eat away at votes for either of the two main party candidates in a way that advantages one over the other. So it's less about that third party winning, more about what does that third party do to the dominant Mm -hmm. two party structure. We are talking with moderator of Face the Nation on CBS, Margaret Brennan. And I was really curious for Margaret's thoughts on the breaking news this morning that President Biden will have a sit down meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping in five days in San Francisco. Well, this is that long anticipated summit between the two leaders of the world's largest economies and arguably the most consequential meeting uh, geopolitically we could see. 
and the news is that they've actually agreed to meet at all wow. and to do so on U.S. soil. Mm. Um, President Xi Jinping coming November the 15th to San Francisco. This would be on the sidelines of the APEC summit, the two leaders uh, to talk about so many different issues that are potentially quite contentious, everything from technology, uh, global economy, the wars in Ukraine, the war in Israel, the uh, Chinese growing closer to Iran and having trade with them. It's that broader question of are we really seeing um, the the split here into two great powers in direct competition in a way that um, is really going to challenge some of the the structures that the the global institutions are based on. It's always been a delicate relationship, but it, in in your observation, when did our relationship with China really start dissolving? Well, you know, the U.S.-China economic relationship is so intertwined, but if you talk to people in the business community going back well over a decade, they've been complaining about intellectual property theft for some time, you know, unfair business practices. None of that is new. It's just reached this crescendo under Xi Jinping's leadership and the cementing of his role as Chinese leader in this, you know, third term president for life really signals that none of that is shifting back in U.S. favor. It is only getting more contentious, the level of of, uh, direct head to head competition only getting that much more complex. So if you were to pick a moment in time, I'd say it would start with that rise of Xi Jinping. But his his um, winning of a, a third term here is really what said to the United States that that this is um, going to continue in this more aggressive fashion that he has adopted. So many important issues to to cover there. I hope, though, President Biden may may prod about those balloons. Those just disappeared from the headlines. (laughs) Gosh, that really did complicate the uh, relationship. And at this point, you know, U.S. military communications have not been fully reestablished. That that was over the um, upset regarding the former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, remember? Mm-hmm, yeah. So we've just had so many um, complications and twists and turns in this storyline. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the Israel-Hamas war real quick. Surprised to see calls for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu step down. Are the tides turning against him in his own country? It is so hard to bet against the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, the longest serving Prime Minister. He has had nine lives politically, uh, but certainly in the wake of this absolutely horrific October the 7th terrorist attack that showed um, a failure of the otherwise impressive Israeli intelligence and military structure, it, it raises those questions of were those political divides within the country getting so bad that it endangered their national security. And that's a significant question for a prime minister who has prided himself on being Mr. Security. Um, And so there are real questions about the politics there and also how the politics influence policy. Um, It's it's hard, again, like I said, to bet against him. um, But certainly the relationship is getting a a little bit more frayed uh, between President Biden and and the prime minister. And you did see this breakthrough yesterday after Mm -hmm. the intel chiefs agreed to these very limited four-hour pauses in the Israeli onslaught on Gaza in order to try to reduce civilian casualties, which are likely upwards of 10,000, according to the State Department. Right. We will keep watching and the latest developments always Sundays on CBS. Moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. 
Our resident historian Felix Spinell joins us Friday mornings at this time for All Over the Map, a quick look at stories behind local places and things. This week, you've probably always wondered, when Washington became a state 134 years ago tomorrow, on November 11th, 1889, what effect did that new star have on the U.S. flag? This has been a burning question my whole life, Felix. I know. Everyone's wondering this. I'm glad we can finally put this put this put uh, these big, long questions to rest after all this silly news we've been talking about all week on the station. Yeah. So well, what are your plans for statehood day tomorrow? I mean, it's, it's always hard because Veterans Day is the same day, right? Right. In Oregon, it's on Valentine's Day. What? Idaho, it's July 3rd. And I guess we're out of time now for my segment, right? Yeah, okay. Um, okay. <clears throat> See you next week. So anyway, Old Glory these days has 50 stars, one for each of the states, of course. And back in 1889, that number wasn't at 50 yet because there were just 38 states. Washington was still a U.S. territory, and the American flag had had 38 stars since Colorado had become a state in 1876. But then, in November 1889, there was a flurry of new states admitted to the Union by President Benjamin Harrison, making good on a plank in the Republican platform from the election of 1888. North Dakota and South Dakota came first. Boom. Mm. And then, oh, wait a minute. Don't take my word for it. Let's have a genuine vexillologist tell us what happened. This is Reno-based flag expert James Farragan. So we go, you know, literally in, in, a, in a period of four days, go 39, 40, and then 41, Montana, and then boom, 42 in November. In November. So we go November 2nd, November 8th, November 11th. Boom, boom, boom. We go from 39, 40, 41, 42, and that's Washington. So Washington became the 42nd state. And I looked, but there's no big foam hands that say we're number 42. Oh, um, now, darn. because of the Flag Act of 1818, everyone knows that, the 38-star flag remained the official flag of the U.S. until the following July 4th, 1890. But that didn't stop people from adding stars themselves to old 38-star flags to make 42-star flags. And then, if all this craziness weren't enough, on July 3rd, 1890, Idaho became state number 43, just in time to make it officially onto the new flag of July 4th, 1890. And that's what's hanging in the studio right now. Oh. A 43-star flag. Count them one by one if you want. I'm not okay. sure which one represents Washington. Now, the 43... That yeah. Is that a replica or is that real? <laughs> it's, oh, no. It's, it's a replica. It's oh, probably, okay. probably made in China. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the 43-star flag debuted, and back then the numbers of the stars was dictated by federal law, but the design and layout, that was up to whoever, to whoever made the flag. Hmm. That didn't change until 1912. Now, but wait... Back in 1890, the craziness wasn't over yet. Wow. July 10th, 1890, Wacky Wyoming became state number 44. But as you'll recall from the Flag Act of 1818, that 44-star flag didn't become official until the next July 4th. Oh, my goodness. Just crazy. So back east where the big manufacturers were, the rapid changes might have created problems for factories making flags. But vexillologist James Farragut says it was different out here in the west. It was a little more DIY. Almost always their stuff was homemade. They, you know, they were so far away. So same with Nevada, where I am. You know, there was not a lot of, how shall we say, official flags out here. They had to rely on uh, the ingenuity of local seamstresses, or they were, as I like to say, they were vernacularly made rather than professionally made. You know, and there's some pretty famous flags like that in local museum collections around here. Mohai has this really cool flag from the 1850s called the petticoat flag, made from like scraps of fabric and stuff. And it's just mm. that was the thing. It was. We, had, we made our own flags here because of the, the design wasn't, wasn't dictated. So now with Statehood Day tomorrow, right, it's also Veterans Day, of course, 2023. It means it's only 16 years until the Washington Sesquicentennial of 2039. So start making your plans now. Book hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. 150th anniversary of Washington State coming up at the end of the next decade. That's crazy. Anniversary or birthday? 
Either one. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of a, I mean, any excuse to eat cake, right? Exactly. But yeah, big shape like a George Washington head with all the flag yeah. and everything. What, so anyways, the, the gentleman whom we heard from, what was he? He's a vexillologist, a flag expert. They're a vexillologist. A true okay. living thing. Yep. Thank you. I was going to ask that question society. too. Yeah, I, I heard that. I, I sort of tease that. I try to like make, force people to go to their, their dictionaries to look up yeah. where it's up occasionally. I almost okay. took that in college. Okay. <laughs> What, a dictionary? No, vexillology. <laughs> if only you could have been featured in one of Felix's stories. I mean, jeez. Thank you, Felix. Thanks. And uh, happy birthday, Washington, tomorrow. That's right. Right, Beach November 11th. Yep. Right now, we want to talk about recycling. We have been teasing this all morning because recycling can really be confusing with all the headlines about China not wanting our dirty recycling and the, the plastic island in the ocean. And we go, well, what's the point? All of this is just ending up in a landfill. Next Wednesday is America Recycles Day. It comes with exciting developments in the efficiency of Washington State recycling. Jeremy Walters is the sustainability ambassador for Republic Services. You recognize that name as the uh, organization that picks up our recycling and trash. And we asked him to help clarify what kinds of plastic we can recycle? Is it about the number on the plastic? Is it about the color? The tip that I give folks is to focus less on the number and more on the characteristic of plastics. So think rigid plastic containers, uh, things like bottles, jugs, and tubs. And if you stick to those items, you're going to be all set to recycle and you don't have to worry about numbers and remembering, you know, which ones you can and which ones you can't. Just think rigid plastic containers. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think also there's some frustration over the state of recycling because we hear that China no longer wants our recycling, that it's too dirty, that recycling is a waste of time. It's not actually being reused. It ends up in a landfill. Can you clarify some of those if they are misconceptions or misinformation? Yeah, a lot of those are common myths and misconceptions. And specifically here in Seattle, uh, you know, everything that comes to our recycling center uh, that is recyclable gets recycled and much of it actually stays within the region. Glass stays here in Seattle, as does steel. Uh, paper and cardboard stay within the region going uh, to Tacoma, Longview and uh, one other region. But, uh, you know, it's so important to understand that recycling does play a role in sustainability. It's so fundamentally important. And to not discredit the fact that recycling is real, there's myths, conceptions that when you go put plastic bottles and jugs in your recycling bin, that we just take it and throw it away. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And we're actually making uh, really strong investments in plastic circularity. Next month in Las Vegas, we're going to be opening up uh, what's called a polymer center. So all of the plastics that are coming through the recycling center here in Seattle are going to be sent down there and they're going to be flaked up and uh, washed so they can be food grade. And what that's going to enable is, you know, maybe your favorite uh, beverage manufacturer when they want to make new bottles, they can purchase the material and make new bottles again. Uh, currently, when you recycle a water bottle, it doesn't always become a bottle again. Uh, sometimes it's extruded into synthetic fibers. You might be familiar with uh, polyester. Uh, bottles can be recycled into polyester used in clothing or carpeting. Uh, I was actually in a hotel recently where the shower curtain was made from recycled water bottles. <laughs> and so, you know, when you think about it in that sense, it's, it's a linear process and it, and it can reach an end of life. You know, a shower curtain, once it's no longer usable, is going to be thrown away and there's no recovering it. But by opening a polymer center, we want to enable that bottle-to-bottle -bottle circularity and keep these materials in that circular economy for the long term. 
So you say that you wash the the plastic once it makes its way down to Vegas when it's chipped up. Does that mean we don't have to make our recycling squeaky clean before we put it in the bin? Because <laughs> that's another barrier, honestly, yeah, for people. True. Especially if it's peanut that's butter. A, that, yeah, that's a, that's a really good call out, Colleen. And it is still important that when you recycle at home to rinse out your, your bottles, your jugs, your cans. And the reason being is that it is mixed with other more fragile recyclables like paper and cardboard. You don't want that residual stuff spilling on those materials and ruining them. The washing process at the polymer center is very different than what you're doing at home. You know, at home you're squirting some water in there from the tap and, you know, swirling the can dry. Uh, but at the polymer center, there's actually some, some chemical components in that wash that enables those ground up flakes to become food grade. So very different and okay. still very important to rinse your uh, your materials at home. We are talking with Jeremy Walters. He is the sustainability ambassador for Republic Services. Another question I had for Jeremy was, how is Washington State doing with recycling compared to the rest of the country? I, you know, I would say that the state of Washington is one of the best in the country. I actually live in Las Vegas. I'm here in Seattle today. But, um, you know, when, when I compare the two states, uh, you guys are leaps and bounds ahead of many others. Now, that's not to say that there's not room for improvement, right? We can all do a better job of making sure that we're putting the right things in the bin, doing it the right way. Um, nationally, when we look at plastics recycling rates, only about 30% of uh, water bottles are actually getting recycled. And that's not because of lack of process. It's only because 30% are even making it into the recycling bin to begin with. So three out of 10 water bottles are even making it into a curbside or commercial collection bin. That's hmm. that's sad. I don't like to hear that. Well, you got to make it more fun. I have, I have relatives in Connecticut, and and one of the, one of the fun things that they have me do as a chore when I visit the grandkids is go down to the recycling center with the cans and the bottles. And they have these. It's basically like a a can and bottle slot machine. You put the thing in. It reads the barcode, knows immediately how to recycle it, and then pays you five, ten cents, depending on what the deal is. And if you take your whole bag of recyclables, you come back with a, a couple of bucks, which you can spend right there at the uh, store. Oh, the grandkids love it, yeah. Yeah, yeah and you know, uh, it's important to, to remember, though, that in some states, when you do get I'm going to say, quote unquote, paid for your recyclables. There's usually a uh, value placed on that bottle or can that you pay on the front end. So whether it's mm -hmm. the five or the 10 cents, it's actually a redemption value. So if you go and you turn it back, you get your money back. But still fun for the kids. They can absolutely uh, take some of that change and go buy something fun. So the bottom line is the color doesn't matter. Size doesn't matter. It's the rigidity. If it's rigid plastic, wash it out and recycle it. Absolutely. Yep. Color, color doesn't matter of the bottles. And that's actually something that Polymer Center is going to be doing as well, is that when we send a big mixed bale of colored plastics, you know, orange, green, blue, white, whatever it is, we're going to be further separating that and making just single colors. So we can, again, truly enable bottle, bottle circulation. But you guys do that. We don't have to do that. The machine is going to nope. do that for us. Right. We're going to do that for you. Exactly. I love that. It really sets my heart at ease that plastics are being recycled, that we can do our part. And I am I have great hope in the next generation, too. I know my 10-year-old, you know, sometimes she may see me put something in the wrong bin. Mom, that's <laughs> recyclable. So I have I have great hope for this next generation. Yeah, absolutely. My, my wife works in the school district, and she always tells me that when she teaches the kids 
about recycling and saving energy that the parents come back, you know, a couple of days later and they're like, man, my kid just follows me around all day now and educates me on what I what I'm doing wrong and if I'm not turning the lights off. So, yeah, absolutely. That's good. Jeremy Walters is the sustainability ambassador for public services. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. 736 now, your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird, a story about kids helping kids. From Minnesota CBS affiliate WCCO, brothers are raising money to make sure children fighting illnesses have an opportunity to experience the sport they love. Brothers Jack and Sam Hetherington have an undeniable love and passion for basketball. We've been like playing in leagues and games and tournaments ever since we were about three to four. They idolize the players on their home team, the Timberwolves. Yeah, I like Cat, Anthony Edwards, and Rudy Gobert. As season ticket holders, Target Center is where some of Jack and Sam's best memories are made. We've always been a Timberwolves fan our whole life and watching them play. They were really special to us of seeing the players play and really gave us motivation to start playing like them. At a game four years ago, the tip-off of an idea, provide a VIP Timberwolves experience for sick children who otherwise wouldn't get to enjoy the excitement in person. To put a smile on the kids' faces that are facing um, life-threatening diseases. We've been thinking about this for a while, but then we started to like take action. They took their shot, creating the Rebound Club. The original name wasn't as catchy. We're going to call it Jack's Club. I'm sure you're happy it's not called uh, Jack's Club, right? Yeah, um, I don't think, because then it's just like, what am I doing here? Jack and Sam are partnering with the TB1 Fund to allow patients and families at M Health Fairview Masonic Children's Hospital to have a free luxury suite experience at Target Center this season. Our goal is to make $80,000 to buy a Sweet for 20 games so like 20 families can come and watch an NBA game. The preteen's nonprofit entrepreneurship <laughs> includes so cool. the design of a Rebound Club website for donations. Our partners, maybe like their logos. In a few weeks, the first family from Masonic Children's will enjoy a suite at the Timberwolves with food, drinks, an NBA jam machine, and some hand-picked gifts from the boys. There'll be like little goodie bags and merch in the suite for the families. That include like gift cards and some like t-shirts and sweatshirts. Jack and Sam already have plans to take their mission to assist others beyond basketball. Yeah, we're manifesting to the twins, the Vikings in the wild. And beyond Minnesota. Go different states soon. Maybe even go worldwide with this company. I hope they do it. That is from WCCO. Hey, how about on this day in history, 1983, a happy birthday to the software that at one point put Washington on top of the world of tech. That's right. Happy birthday to Microsoft's Windows operating system for PCs. Here's CBS tech contributor Ian Scher. Even though Windows is 40 years old, it is actually the software that powers most of the computers out there that are not made by Apple. For a while, it seemed that Windows was invincible, but there were some setbacks, including an antitrust lawsuit brought by the U.S. government, which did find Microsoft running a monopoly, and also the mobile device revolution that followed the announcement of the iPhone and led to an explosion of new apps and companies. I have to say, I'm still a PC gal, still a Windows gal. Does that age me now? Is that a sign of age if you haven't adopted Apple yet? Not necessarily. 
but I do think Apple kind of has a cooler look to it, mm-hmm. right? right? It does feel younger. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why, yeah. I, I still have the iPhone, but yeah, when I bought a new laptop, I got to go Windows. Don't don't get mad. I'm a Galaxy girl. Ooh, and Mickey. But my son, I know, but my son is all things Apple. The, his laptop, his phone, his speaker, his everything. It's all Apple. Mm. I'm going to let this play out for a second. Faith mm. Evans. Always a good jam. If it weren't so early, I might sing. Uh, You should sing anyway. I never knew a love like this before, right? I never knew there was a love like this before, this before, this before. (laughs) All right, there we go. I hope our listeners sang with us. Mickey Gomez, Colleen O'Brien, Angela Poe Russell's joining us. She's filling in on the G and Ursula show today. And this morning, we want to talk about the latest vote tally in Tacoma last night shows the controversial Tacoma Tenant Bill of Rights measure is now passing, just barely. Um, But I say controversial because, you know, depending on how you feel about it, some people say that this bill is going to hold landlords hostage. Others say it will protect tenants from landlords who will gouge them or evict them without cause. So, Angela, your thoughts on this? Oh, I have so many thoughts. Where do I begin? Why don't I just start at the beginning? Okay. At the end of the day, some landlords got greedy, and that's what led to this. I mean, they got straight up greedy. I've experienced it firsthand. Um, a single mom, you know, two kids living in a place, and my landlord is this Amazon worker, you know, making a lot of money, and he raised the rent by five hundred dollars and one fell swoop, Whoa. like five hundred yeah. bucks. Recently, um, this was maybe six years ago. Six years ago. That feels so, recent. Yeah, it yeah, <laughs> felt very recent like to me. Three years from the but pandemic. But yeah, that was, and when I looked at what it would cost to move, I just felt like I was trapped. I had no choice. And so I had to figure it out. Um, so I think there were a lot of cases like that, that probably led to something like this. But in my view, this goes too far. Mm, okay. So a lot it of people not familiar far. with the bill, tell us about what it would do and what you think goes too far. Okay. A couple of things um, in terms of rent increase notices. That sounds pretty reasonable. Like if I'm going to increase the rent, um, this particular bill would say three months, give a notice and six, so six months and then three months. So sure. two notices. That sounds reasonable. The things that start to get interesting, and this is what different, differentiates it from Seattle, is that if you do a rent, if you're a landlord and you do a rent increase at 5%, that would be the trigger that would say you, the the, the tenant could request Relocation assistance. Oh, at five, so if you have a place at twenty one hundred dollars, and you raise the rent, let's say by five percent of that, then you, as the landlord, may have to pay them to help them relocate. You have to pay and their Seattle, moving costs. Yes, in okay. Seattle, that number would is ten percent, or that percentage is ten percent. <gasps> okay, so, so this, this is more further, aggressive. Yeah. yeah, and 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 I have to tell you, I mean, now um, we do have a rental property in Seattle, not by choice, only because we couldn't sell it yeah. <laughs> because the interest rates went up, and trust me, not by choice. And so we break even, you know. So. Um, you know, I, I think about some of this in the whole relocation assistance. And by the way, the other difference between Seattle and Tacoma is that in Seattle, it's if you make a certain income that you would qualify. In this Tacoma one, there's no 
um, income requirement. So this is from big apartment complexes to houses that can everybody who rents to somebody would be under this new bill. Yeah, but also the key thing is you could be a person making six figures and get into the situation where someone increases your rent by more than 5% and you could get relocation assistance. Hmm. Interesting. Right? No, that's I very mean, interesting. Yeah, whereas in Seattle, they say, hey, it's if you make this certain amount. We got lucky here in Seattle renting in Capitol Hill, but um, our landlords, we extended, we lived there for two years, not bad, um, but they were really kind. When we extended for a couple of more months, they said, don't worry about it. You can pay the same amount of rent, which was still high, but I was, we were really lucky that we didn't get an increase. It also happens too, like you talked about your $600 increase. I've had that happen too when we were renting a house in Linwood and all of a sudden, like two months before our our lease was up, they're like, "Mm, we're going to increase it by $400, which made it unaffordable for us. Yeah, it's greedy. And it it is greedy. And oftentimes used to push people out because you want a higher income renter to come in and pay it easily, right? You don't want problems with your tenant. So what do you do if you can't protect people against those types of landlords? Well, and here's the thing. I'm saying we should have protections. I think that you should be able to give notices. I do think um, there should be some kind of limit on the amount. I just think this, in my view, is just too aggressive. You know, 5%, Come, I mean, 5% mm-hmm. to trigger the relocation assistance is absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, I will say this in terms of what you experienced that the, you said you experienced, a, was it several hundred dollars? 400. 400 yeah, that's a, that's a huge deal. And, yeah. here's, and here's the thing. It's not even that you're having, like in our case, we were ideal tenants, barely called Same. them for issues, like paid our rent. He just knew that he could get more. Yeah. And that's, and I mean, hey, I'm, I I understand, but it's like, that's just, so I am agree. I'm in agreement. I think we need protections. I just think this goes too far. I think it's really interesting if it does passes, but if it does pass, I should say that the latest result I'm seeing is that the voter turnout on, in Pierce County was like 20%. Yeah, it's not, it's mm. not great. I, I feel like there could be a referendum on the way or yeah. some sort of like, let's redo this and see what we can do. And wouldn't you as a landlord rather just have Good renters who pay. I I was about to. We don't have time for this, but I was about to go into the fact that I think housing is a human right. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to be a landlord, it needs to come with an ethical oath to make sure that you aren't leaving people. Regulations can be good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. There needs to be some ethical boundaries there. Thank you, Angela. Thanks for having me. And she will be joined by Mike Lewis on the G and Ursula show. That's coming up at nine o'clock. to have you with us at 834. I'm Colleen O'Brien. We have a special Veterans Day story. Puget Sound military veterans are turning trauma into beauty since being recruited to sing in a 2019 Seattle opera production. A local group of veterans has been meeting and singing on a regular basis. And now a new work has been commissioned based on their own stories. Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch reports. Tell me all about your life. The lyrics in this opera are personal. Oh, that's from my story. They're based on conversations with members of the Seattle Opera Veterans Choir, people like retired Army medic Nick Minotti. I was in uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Former Air Force flyer Joel Ware IV. I served in Vietnam, yeah. Yeah, combat. And retired Army nurse Sarah Blum. Yes, I was in Vietnam during the war. Yeah. I saw the worst of the worst because I was in the operating room. The verse Blum contributed to is about walking down a long corridor lined with 
patients, many of them amputees, at a hospital where she trained before leaving for Vietnam. My heart didn't let me walk down without engaging with them and finding out who they were and what they'd been through and get to know them. Bless you for caring. That's a nurse's heart. (laughs) Much of the opera, called The Path, focuses on that desire to help in a much broader sense. Mendoti's verse. My words are, I am in your midst as one who serves. Because it's us. I mean, it's, it's who we are and what we do. And poignantly, the piece performed by the Veterans Chorus and the U.S. Army Field Band Soldiers Chorus includes conversations about what it's like when active service ends, but you still feel like a soldier. While there are references to tumultuous memories, the piece doesn't dwell on them, though clearly decades later, combat weighs on these vets. We're constantly being mortared. It was very intense. There's nothing that focuses the mind like like realizing that you're in mortal danger. There were little lulls, but never a time when you felt like you were safe. But these veterans tell me the mere act of singing alongside those who understand what it means to serve helps them deal with the long-lasting memories of war. When I got into the room upstairs where we practice and we started singing together, I just, I was crying because it just felt so good to be singing with my brothers. Mm. It took away a lot of the negativity of being in the war. like creating something beautiful together, which takes away a lot of the ugliness. A story that comes from these veterans, their experiences transformed from trauma to beauty. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. And we've put a link to information about the Seattle Opera Veterans Choir at MyNorthwest.com. Heather joins us live in the studio. Did did any of these individuals know they could sing before this? You know, it's really cute. Um, Sarah was telling me, I'm not an opera singer. I'm not an opera singer. I say, I'm pretty sure you are now an opera singer. Mm-hmm. You know, and what's amazing about this choir is you don't have to be an operatic soprano or have that level of skill. They're taking anyone in who really has this joy. A lot of them do sing quite well. But taking any veteran in who says, you know, I just want to try this out. I want to spend some time in community with fellow veterans who understand what I've been through. And yeah, I want to make some music. You, you see that with other efforts too. Art can be so healing, whether it's painting to work through your trauma, walking through nature. And for them, it turns out to be singing. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is this um, group was brought together by Seattle, Seattle Opera through a nonprofit called Path with Art, mm. which is a Seattle nonprofit that does reach out to often marginalized people and sadly sometimes our veterans are Mm -hmm. so that is that understanding that bringing people together letting them experiencing art can be very therapeutic and sometimes it needs to be done with people who understand as well Um, you know as great as it is to say thank you to a veteran and we all should you know, asking their stories. We haven't necessarily earned the right to those yeah. stories. And so if they can find fellow veterans to to express and, and get that off their mind and out into the open, it can be healing as well. It was lovely interviewing them because they sat them down together. I mm. wanted to interview them at the same time and they were sort of chiming in. Yeah, yeah, I know what that's like. And oh, that's a nurse's heart. I know what that is like. Yeah. That's so, so wonderful for me to experience. That camaraderie. All wow. right. Again, information about this at MyNorthwest.com. <laughs> Woo!
Great song to Bye end that. the show on a Friday. We're joined by Mickey Gomez, too, for Mickey Time. I think mm-hmm. Dave coined that. He just he decided did. to start calling it Mickey Time. You know what it makes me think of? What? Miller Time. Oh, every time he says that, it's Miller Time. And I'm it's like, no, it's Mickey Time. Mickey Time. Maybe that's where it came from. Uh-huh. Who knows? So self-driving cars by the General Motors company Cruise, mm-hmm. they are off the road until further notice. This was really sudden when they pulled the driverless cars. What's the reason? Well, they had to because the automaker, uh, well, a pedestrian in California was hit Mm. by a car with a driver and the pedestrian hit the windshield and then flew off and was then hit and dragged by a cruise driverless car and a driverless car that didn't even have a driver in the car just in case something went wrong. This car was completely empty. Was it being tested or was it on the road doing a job? It was being tested and because these these cars are not ready to be on the road to do a job. So I spoke to really? uh, w, yeah, I spoke to WWJ's Jeff Gilbert in Detroit and he says the company recalled its entire fleet for a software update. So this update will update the software that runs the vehicle to say if you hit something, stop. Yeah, because before if it hit something, it would just drive Keep to the going. side of the road. Well, it knew to pull over, but it didn't know to stop. Can you believe yikes, that? Yikes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the decision was made to pull them. What mm-hmm. next? Yeah. So Gilbert says Cruise shut down its business temporarily. Uh, the company tested a self-driving vehicle here in Seattle last summer. I, I think you might remember that. A driver was in tow to take over at a moment's notice, but Cruise was here in Seattle back in August, and they were trying to learn how to teach their cars to drive in the rain. Unfortunately, we didn't have any rain in August. <laughs> and then they also wanted to teach the car how to drive in hills, uh, you know, through the hills because we're pretty hilly here. But what's next? Well, we don't know. They're, they're trying to basically update the vehicles, all 950 of them, and then we'll see where it's going to go from there. Driverless cars. Mm-hmm. I, w- I want to embrace the technology. Mm-hmm. I've embraced the electric car technology. I don't own an electric car myself, but, you know, I love seeing how, I love how quiet they are. Yeah. Right? Because I can't say, I'm, I'm at you that age now. You never know if it, where, like, is my car on? Yeah. If yeah. a car is too loud, I'm like, such a racket, right? So, like, I love the quietness of it. I love the earth-friendly, mm-hmm. but the driverless stuff, especially because I think, was that same case or was it a different case in California where they sued saying, no, you are responsible. If you're an autopilot, mm-hmm. you are still responsible for what happens with that car because it was an autopilot. It hit somebody, killed somebody, yeah. and the driver tried to argue, well, it's not my fault right. because it was an autopilot. And they said, no, no, you're the driver. You're always the driver. Right. And that's something that we're very used to, right? We're used to collisions that involve drivers. Right. You know, we're mm-hmm. not used to, oh, my gosh, an autonomous, an vehicle. autonomous vehicle. Who's who do fault? we blame? Right. Yeah, is it the yeah. engineer who built the software or is it the car company? Is it both? And that's something that we might have to get used to in the future if these autonomous driving vehicles become more popular. Where would you be comfortable with an autonomous vehicle? Personally, mm-hmm. I don't think I would be comfortable with that. I I still I don't even use cruise control really when I drive co- cross country. No, I am just absolutely I need to feel like I'm in control, mm. and I'm absolutely terrified of. Well, oh my gosh, what if I can't get it out of cruise control in time? I mean, I know I can press the brake, but still, cruise control that. I'm a terrible control. backseat driver anyways. Mm-hmm. I think so I like- I would know. I would be so stressed out the entire time. I know the point is to be able to kind of sit back and relax or even, you know, do work, do do what you have to do while the car is driving itself. And I wouldn't be able to take my eyes off the road because 
at any moment, I would feel like it's going to malfunction in some way. It's not going to predict what's what's about to happen in the correct, you know, mm-hmm. timing or manner and the correct distance. It's not going to break in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I've been sort of against this idea from the get go. And uh, this just um, validates all of my fears. I well, feel like. we're going to have to get used to it because um, Gilbert says auto companies like GM are in this race to invent the wheel, so to speak. If it can create a self-driving car, then it becomes a tech company and it can really compete with Tesla. GM uh, at this particular point is standing by crews. They say they see a future of self-driving cars that they feel are going to be safer and more efficient. Now check this out. Tell me if you guys aren't scared of this and maybe Colleen, you won't be. Gilbert says GM has a few hundred vehicles it built in Detroit called the Cruise Origin and the automaker believes that this car is the future. Which is designed to be totally self-driving. No steering wheel, no paddles, no nothing. It 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 just drives itself based on, on input. But the government uh, didn't approve a vehicle like this, so they can't test it on the road or anything. So they had to stop production of this uh, of this car, and it lost billions. It lost billions of dollars, mm. according to Gilbert. But they say GM says it's not giving up. Ford's bailed. Ford is like, nope, the technology's not there. We're not ready to invest in this. So, yeah. Too much liability. Yeah. I also, like, if we do perfect the technology, they're allowed on the roads, then I see... You know, this is just my mind going worst case scenario. People messing with those autonomous vehicles, making them stop. You're behind right. the autonomous. Like if they have their own lane, mm-hmm. they have their own roads. If you know, if you want to go that route, that becomes another ex- form of public transit. Go for it. But okay. that yeah. requires a new infrastructure that requires yeah. another new lane on the highway. But if it means we're not going to be dying because an autonomous vehicle stopped suddenly, then, you know. But we're dying anyway, what? even on the highway. With, okay, with this drivers just who drive the car. I, so I would dark. worry about people remotely hacking yeah, yeah, into yeah, them. That's, you know, that's, that's, that, oh, that is an, a new worry. Yeah, we, our Washington State ferries just got hacked. So who's to say cars are going to be hacked next? Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.